on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a Tasmanian timber company strong on diversity. To start with, I would never pitch myself in this industry. Um, I used to be in housekeeping um, and then our boss knew me and asked me if I'd like a job and I come in not really knowing what I was getting myself into but um, I absolutely love this job. And some relief for wombats in the wild who suffer from mange. But now we have a new treatment that my laboratory has been working on for some time to establish that it is safe and effective to give to wombats and, uh, and it is much longer lasting. In fact, it, a single treatment lasts at least a month if not much longer. Yeah, treating our much-loved wombats and hopefully getting rid of the mange. And diversity in the forest, those stories coming up. G'day, Tony with you on this Tuesday. Another magnificent day in the state. Hope it's a good one for you at the moment. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage to see if this great weather will continue. And in just a moment, a major food processor offers potato growers more money to plant spuds even in December. And we'll bring you details of a world record in three-stand shearing broken by two brothers and their cousin, and you will not believe the number of merino lambs they ended up shearing in just eight hours. That story a little bit later in the program. Plus, you can be part of the show via the text line with your thoughts. 0438 922 936, that number. 0438 922 936. First up, potatoes. And spud growers have welcomed Simplot's offer to pay them more money for the crop they're still trying to plant. Weeks of constant rain has made it impossible for planting equipment to get onto paddocks. Lee Elphinstone from the Simplot Potato Growers Committee hopes an extra $20 a tonne will be an incentive to plant as late as December. Yeah, well, there's been lots of growers obviously well concerned with how this season, especially the planting season, was shaping up with huge delays because of the weather and wet ground. And that was expressing them concerns to us as a committee. So we went back to Simplot and held several meetings to sort of discuss what could we do collectively to... Um, ease the pain for growers moving forward. So Simplot was very receptive uh, to our ideas and uh, was able to put a proposal forward. So what is the company proposing? Um, They've got a couple of options in there. Uh, Option one is they will guarantee a yield of 50 tonne to the hectare for spuds planted after the 14th of November. That's for crops that may yield between 19 and 49 tonne, um, just to guarantee growers that they're supporting them and they'll help them through the tough season if, if it doesn't turn out real good. They want the spuds planted. That's sort of option one. Or growers could opt for option two, which is another $20 a tonne on the contract price. And is there any caveat with that one? Uh, no, it's, you can pick one option or the other. You can't have a bit of both. Obviously, option one is only for spuds planted after the 14th of November. And option two, uh, with the 20 bucks, that's over your full contract volume. Okay, and what's option three? And then, well, they've then come out with another offer that's uh, applicable to everyone. If you can grow uh, over your contracted volume off your contracted area, uh, they'll pay a $150 premium on top of the contract price for that over quota potatoes. How, how have these options been received by growers? Yeah, they're very welcomed uh, options received by the growers. They're... Um, quite pleased that Simplot uh, are definitely there to support them through these tough times. So, uh, yeah, extremely well received by all growers, I think. 
Who's likely to take up the offer and, and where are these spuds, where where could they come from? Well, the option one, that is probably really there for guys that have got wet line paddocks that they haven't been able to get onto and probably unlikely to get onto until at least the middle of November. Yeah, I've looked at the forecast for us after Thursday's looking pretty ordinary again for another week. So yeah, it's to encourage them guys to keep Keep persevering, um, keep talking to Simplot, keep talking to your field officer, hopefully plant the potatoes, if, if, if need be, right through into early December. At this point in the season, it's not realistic to just pick another paddock and put them in there because there's a lot of preparation work that goes in, into the lead up to, to putting the spuds in the ground. Yeah, that's right. People already have their plans for, for their paddock, so in most cases they're probably already sprayed out and stuff, so it's not... Yeah, that easy just to go changing paddocks. And some people, the only farms they're on are wet line paddocks. A lot of seasons, that's fine. But this wet season, I think it was reported that it's the wettest October for quite some time. Just makes it very difficult for them guys to get any potatoes in the ground. Is Simplot anticipating a shortage despite these measures that they're putting in place to encourage growers to try and put in as, as many spuds as they possibly can? Uh, at this stage, I think they're very hopeful that they'll go close to getting the volume that they require but yeah they, they I suppose they they're only just getting the volume that they may need so they really want to encourage growers to work yeah. with them and uh, yeah keep planting. Lee do you know how much has gone in the ground already? I couldn't tell you the updated figures on the last few days I reckon most tractors are burning <laughs> diesel um, but yeah at the start of the week it, it was only around 25% of the volume um, Simplot's total volume was in the ground. Wow, and you really need to get uh, the bulk of that crop in by mid-November. That's when that that yield starts to drop away. Yeah, the yield does drop away soon. Sort of once you get past the 10th to the 15th, yield does start dropping off uh, or yield potential drops off. So, yeah, you'd really like to be uh, well planted by the 10th. It's probably 80 or 90% planted by the 10th, I suppose, 80% probably. Yeah, so we're a fair way beyond, but I reckon a fair bit of catch-up is happening in this last sort of three or four days. How much planting can you fit into one day if you've got beautiful sunny weather like today? Is there a point where you have to pull up because of dew or, or anything like that or can you just go well into the night? Oh, yeah, you can just keep going as long as your eyelids will stay open. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's been some pretty long days by some people, I think, trying to, trying to get them in the ground. And you're at uh, Sisters Creek. Uh, what, what are conditions like there? Uh, a couple of days ago, things were still um, probably a little bit too wet. Things are getting quite good probably today. Yeah, so things are drying out. It's still wet underneath in lower line spots, but, yeah, things are starting to go in quite nice. The tractor's going all day and all night. That's Lee Elphinstone, head of the Simplot Potato Growers Committee, chatting there to Larissa Smith about the potato growers welcoming Simplot's offer to pay them more money for the crop. They're still trying to plant for next season's. And farmers who grow for McCain are still waiting to hear back from the company on whether it will also offer an extra financial incentive to plant the potatoes. Well, there has been a breakthrough in the treatment of a disease that's killing wombats in the wild on the eastern seaboard and through most of Tasmania. Disease ecologist at the University of Tasmania, Scott Carver, says a permit has now been issued for landholders and wildlife carers to utilise a commonly available product to treat the animals. Scott Carver says his research has paved the way for the permit to be issued to combat the mange. 
So wombats uh, suffer from a disease that's called sarcoptic mange, and uh, that disease is caused by a little parasitic mite that burrows into their skin and uh, causes them all sorts of uh, symptoms, including hair loss and thickening and crusting of their skin. And ultimately, uh, wombats um, suffer from that disease for about three months before they can die from it. And how widespread is it across the country? Bear-nosed wombats also cause called the common wombat occur throughout southeastern Australia. So essentially New South Wales down through Victoria and into Tasmania and just a little bit into South Australia. Uh, and it's found right across their range, although its prevalence varies a great deal among populations. So it was introduced to Australia by European settlers and their domestic animals, and it spilled over to wombats on more than one occasion. And now that it, now it naturally sort of uh, cycles in wombat populations, and it's not going to cause them to go extinct, but it certainly causes an enormous amount of sort of individual suffering to wombats and, uh, and occasionally can lead to local outbreaks that will cause population declines. And up till now, you couldn't do much about it? Uh, up till now, uh, you have been able to use some treatments, including some common agricultural ones uh, that um, people quite commonly use on cows and things to uh, uh, treat ectoparasites. They're also effective on wombats. And, and there's a whole network of wildlife carers and rehabilitators who use those on wombats. The challenge with those is that they only last about a week in a wombat and you have to retreat them frequently. And, and that's quite challenging for a wild animal. But now we have a new treatment that my laboratory has been working on for some time to establish that it is safe and effective to give to wombats and, uh, and it is much longer lasting. In fact, a single treatment lasts at least a month, if not much longer. Although this drug is a, not one that we have developed, it is one um, that's commercially available for uh, domestic cats and dogs. Um, uh, people can buy that. And the permit is really for wildlife carers and wildlife rehabilitators and, and also landholders who would like to try and uh, manage mange and wombats on their land so that they can actually undertake this uh, independently of having to have veterinary oversight. I imagine wombats in the wild, you're not just going to walk up to them and, and uh, give them this uh, treatment. Uh, is it hard for, uh, say, landowners to do this? It depends on the stage of disease that the wombat is at. So when they're uh, quite severely uh, uh, suffering from mange, people can often actually walk up quite close to them and, and deliver treatments to them. Uh, so at those stages, yes, people can. Um, the advantage of this drug is you can cure them of mange uh, within one to three treatments. So that makes it much more feasible to manage it, whereas uh, some of the other drugs, which are still very effective, uh, you just have to try and do it every week for about 12 weeks, and that, that creates a few other challenges. So. Yeah, obviously if they're wild wombats, um, yeah, retreating them might become a problem. Yeah, and once they start to feel better, they really don't want you to uh, go anywhere near them, so they tend to run away. <laughs> yeah. Is it easy to see uh, the problem in the wombats, the mange itself? It is. So wombat sufferings from psychoptic mange, uh, a couple of the most notable signs are that they lose a lot of hair off their bodies. So you can see these sort of big bald patch on their uh, on their flanks in particular. And they also tend to be more frequently out during the daytime. And that's because they need to forage more uh, while they're trying to fight this infection. And is it transmissible easily from one wombat to another? 
It does seem to transmit pretty readily between wombats, uh, but via the environment. So wombats are mostly solitary animals, and they'll and a single wombat will often live down one burrow. But wombats shift burrows every four to ten days, so they essentially move house every four to ten days. Uh, and another wombat may come in and use the burrow that they were using and pick up the mites that are left in the bedding chamber in the burrow. Okay, so how exciting is this breakthrough? It's transformative for uh, people who are trying to manage this disease in wild wombats. So it's a, a real challenge for all these this massive volunteer workforce across southeastern Australia who basically go out and are just passionate about wombats and just passionately want to try and help alleviate their suffering and it is such terrible suffering that they go through so the fact that they can use this without veterinary oversights so that and we know it's safe and effective on them just makes their uh, their ability to control this better uh, we're also working with a group called wires or the drug company uh, pharmaceutical companies working with a group called wires and they're based out of new south wales and and that's to help sort of regulate the training of people uh, to be able to use this drug so that they have uh, appropriate sort of skilled and that can be the same for sort of landholders as well. And I'm imagining there is a cost for all this research and for all this uh, treatment and where's all the money coming from to uh, try and help the wombats? We've had a really uh, wonderful support from a range of different avenues. We were successful uh, not so long ago with the Australian Research Council, which funds a lot of research, uh, using a grant that's called a linkage grant, which means we also had industry partners. And those industry partners included the pharmaceutical company, uh, community groups, um, and, and various other um, organisations uh, across Tasmania and New South Wales. And how easy is it to access this new breakthrough treatment? Well, this treatment is called Brevecto, and it's widely available through local veterinarians and pet supply stores. Uh, and there's still lots of improvements to be made, like we still have to try and get better at delivering uh, drugs to these animals as well, so as they tend to run away and <laughs> create, a, create all sorts of other challenges. Um, and so we're, uh, we're also working on sort of innovations in that space at the same time. That's Scott Carver, a disease ecologist at UTAS, talking about the new treatment for wombats in the wild to combat mange, let's hope. It uh, works and does its magic and gets rid of the uh, the mange and the poor wombats. Now, just a, a note for you, the diary this Saturday, the ABC Hobart Foyer is the place for the launch of the 2022 ABC Giving Tree Appeal. Yes, it's back on. Uh, you're welcome to come in and see the giant tree, enjoy the Christmas carols, take a photo with Santa and also make a donation to bring joy to a Tasmanian in need this Christmas. Now, the foyer will be open from 9.30 in the morning until midday. And you can also tune in for the launch. Rick Goddard and Lucy Braden will be broadcasting live from 10 o'clock. And for more than 40 years, the ABC Giving Tree has brought joy to Tasmanians at Christmas. If you want more information, visit the website abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. But uh, you're welcome in the ABC Hobart foyer this Saturday morning from 9.30 till midday for the launch of the Giving Tree. Coming up in just a moment, what's happening with hay and will alternative grape varieties add some strength to the Australian wine industry? ABC Radio, keeping local conversations going. Well, I think people want to feel connected. They want to believe in each other, and we need that sense of community. Listening to your show got me through it. There's a huge power imbalance. This is an industry that is totally unregulated. You're one of my favourite people on the radio. I grew up listening to ABC. Fabulous stuff. Stay connected with ABC Radio. Let's keep this conversation on radio, online and on the ABC Listen app. 
Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The amazing three-stand shearing record coming up later in the program. But with the big problems hay producers are facing and trying to get their crops into a bale, what's it going to mean for export markets? Jeff Walker is National Grower and Quality Assurance Manager with Exporter Hay Australia. He says the business will look to alternatives like straw to try and fill the oat and hay void. You know, we've been affected you know, probably by about 50% here in Victoria and the eastern states. Production will be down. You know, we're looking to source uh, other products, you know, straw and whatever we can do with growers to um, help their situation, help our situation as well. Obviously, good quality hay is going to be hard to find and there's going to be a lot of poor quality hay. Is there an export market for that poorer quality oat and hay? Yeah, certainly is. You know, beef, beef grades and those sorts of things that have uh, exported. Uh, there's you know, mid to low grade. You know, there's there's uh, different end users out there that you know require different products. Uh, so look, um, anything at the right moisture, and uh, you know, without severe mould damage and those sorts of things, you know, is certainly exportable. You talked about a 50% reduction. Do you know what tonnage you now expect to process this year compared to what, what you'd been planning on? Look, we're still working through that at the moment. Like, I'm currently uh, with farmers uh, today and, uh, you know, they've, they're still cutting, you know, or just started cutting. Like, these crops are mature, but they are still, uh, they're still, still going to make reasonable hay. That end figure or end percentage is still working through that like um uh so you know i'm you know, reasonably confident that we'll uh you know we'll be in that uh 30 to forty thousand ton mark currently but that may you know depending on future rain events all those sorts of things uh it will impact on stuff that's just been cut now but uh, hopefully that's where you know we we're aiming uh just here in uh just out of bridgewater Obviously, rain reduces the quality of hay, but how about maturity when it's now being cut perhaps far later than ideal? Does that have a big effect on quality as well? Yeah, it does, yeah, no, no, no doubt. Um, but once again, these grades, you know, to the end user, um, you know, are still, you know, still sorted. Yeah, so, look, I'm, I'm confident that, uh, you know, anything that is not severely weather damaged uh, will, will find a place in the market. Can you talk about what the price for oat and hay is doing? Oh, look, I think that's a bit immature, really, you know, to to, to discuss a price. I'd rather see strings around it, uh, feed test-wise, you know, but, you know, they, they, it's going to be strong strong pricing there, you know, it's purely just from the supply and demand side of things, you know. So, you know, look, uh, I, I think everyone realises that the uh, the amount of tonnes that it's going to produce is going to be well down. So, and I can expect uh, the price to be very strong. And anecdotally, it seems like there's going to be huge fodder demand in the dairy industry, particularly those flood-affected farmers, some typically self-sufficient who've had their, their feed wiped out. So are you going to have to when you're trying to buy hay for export, are you going to have to compete with, with those players in the market too? Yeah, well, um, we are effectively one of those as well. Um, you know, as I said, we've we, uh, got a strong domestic arm to our business now, but our main goal is export. But, uh, you know, we you know, will be sourcing both export and domestic lines uh, that, to meet our requirements. Even going right back, Jeff, even before... All, the, all of this rain caused problems. 
Had there already been a big reduction in areas planted to hay? Yes. Uh, look, at uh, there was certainly a reduction, you know, with uh, strong pricing around other commodities. Uh, certainly was well back, you know, and yeah, obviously the uh, reduced opportunity to go to uh, China with uh, uh, registrations not being renewed certainly had a play uh, on that situation as well. But growers that have got it in their rotation and been doing hay for a long time were still in the game and still supportive of the export community. And looking back, we did see several years ago with the, the prolonged New South Wales drought that really every hay shed was virtually cleared out. Um, if we fast forward 12 months to this time next year, could we be in a similar position by then? I think, uh, you know, I think so. There's not a lot of uh, carry it now, you know, so uh, you know, I'd expect to be everything to be very empty uh, going into next season. And as well, once once people put the grain harvest behind them, will you be encouraging people to bale up as much straw as possible and will there be a home for that if they do that? I would certainly encourage um, uh, cereal growers or uh, grain growers if they're looking to do straw to contact an exporter and make sure that you have got uh, a market for it before you do it. But, you know, we, we are very active and looking, uh, talking to our growers about straw. So, yeah, look, if, uh, if anybody's out there thinking you're doing it, I'd certainly make contact with an exporter before you do it. That was Jeff Walker from Hay Australia speaking with Angus Furley about the production of hay at the moment. To the wine industry now, and there's no denying that Australia's wine industry on the mainland is facing some significant challenges at the moment. If you grow Shiraz, Merlot, Cabernet and other red varieties, it's getting increasingly harder to find a winery that's willing to take grapes and then pay a price for the fruit that covers the cost of production. There are alternative grape varieties, but could that help the industry bounce back? 21st Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show has just wrapped up in Mildura. 776 entries were received this year. Karina Wright from Oliver's Taranga Vineyard at McLaren Vale is the wine show's president and also a panel chair judge. She says while many alternative varieties are difficult to pronounce, there are a number of reasons why they're gaining in popularity and could help boost the wine industry. Yeah, I mean, it's tough times. China pulling out, um, you know, it's a major amount of Shiraz and Cabernet in particular that was heading over there. Um, These varieties, you know, probably weren't really heading over to China and they're in huge demand. But obviously coming from a much lower base, I think there's some great opportunities for some of these varieties in, um, you know, that suit the regions really well. Um, I can see quite a bit of uh, grapes being, vines being changed over. So there's a lot of grafting happening, a bit of pulling out. Um, So I think you know, um, we're going to see more and more alternatives coming to play. Sustainability seems to be another really big thing that agriculture broadly is facing. Where do these new varieties fit in terms of their water use and their suitability to this changing climate that we're seeing? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Australia got a whole a few French varieties come over here, um, and there's ten thousand Italian varieties and something. You know, there's way um, more varietal choice out there that we haven't even played with yet in Australia, but. You know, some of the early varieties that we've been working on are ones that have worked really well in terms of being quite drought tolerant, heat tolerant, high natural acidity, you know, things like that and working um, well in regions that maybe have disease pressure or um, water pressure, those sorts of things. So, yeah, that's been one of the focuses and one of the reasons and drivers, you know, uh, for alternative varieties in the first place. There also seems to be an increasing desire to match wine with food. Does that benefit 
alternative varieties over more mainstream ones? Really, yeah, that is exactly it. Uh, alternative varieties um, are often a bit more textural in some ways. Um, they sort of aren't maybe sort of competing with the foods. They've got a bit more of a tannin structure sort of in play. And, you know, we all know when we, you know, when we were lucky enough to go to Italy or France or, or Spain or somewhere else and you're sitting in a tiny little place and you're just drinking whatever's there and you're eating whatever's there and it all se- sort of seems to work, um, I think... Uh, you know, Australians are eating a lot more that way now, and um, you know, wanting to have wines that you know sing with their food, and um, and also wanting to have a lot more variety. Um, so yeah, I think alternative varieties have a massive place there. At your vineyard, is there anything you're looking at planting, or you've recently put in that you're expecting? will be the next th- big thing? Yeah, well, Fiano's our big one um, that we really love in our vineyard. We also have Vermentino, but this year we've also planted Falangina. So Falangina comes from the same region as Fiano, um, it, which is Campania or Avellino, just inland from Positano in Italy. I'm pretty excited about that one. Uh, I'm actually heading to Italy on Saturday <laughs> night <laughs> and going to go out and taste a lot um, over there. So I'm look- really looking forward to it. It can't be an easy process, though, to find something that you like overseas and get those vines back to Australia and then be in a large enough volume to be able to replant them. What does that all involve? Oh, it's a massive process. We're very lucky that we have... um family businesses like Yalumba and uh, Chalmers who uh, have vine nurseries who are bringing in varieties. It's a, you know, it's a 10-year process and it costs a lot of money to get um, varieties in. Thankfully, they had the, uh, the foresight to start doing it you know, in the early days and so you know, some of us now have been working with some of these varieties for you know, 20 years or so. Do they necessarily grow exactly the same way when they're in Australia? How can you... Uh, you know, is there a difference to them compared to, say, a bottle that you'd pull off a shelf over in Italy? Yeah, for sure, um, and that's all to do with the different varietal, um, the different um, environmental, you know, influences that we have in each region. So, um, I, have, for example, have Menthea, which is a Spanish variety. It's grown at you know great altitude on very slaty vineyards. I don't have any altitude in McLaren Vale, um, but you know, we're seeing similar characters. Uh, Fiano, in particular, is probably one that we are seeing very similar. Um, styles but you know you're making different styles different regions uh, you know um, different influences so some elements yes and they grow similarly but you know we've really got to see how they work in Australian environs. Is it difficult to get people to try these new varieties once you get them into a bottle? Yeah, sure, especially if they can't pronounce the name. It's a, it's a bit of a trick. But um, I just encourage everyone to just you know, check things out. Don't be scared. You know, if you don't like it, one of them, um, it, it doesn't mean you're not going to like every, every one of that variety. And um, I think there's, you know, some, there's a whole wide world out there that people can just um, have adventures on. So, yeah, give it a crack. Corinna Wright from Oliver's Taranga Vineyard at McLaren Vale, who's the president and a panel chair judge at the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show. Speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. Still to come on the Country Hour, a shearing record you won't believe, diversity in the forest, and we'll have a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Victim survivors of institutional child sexual abuse have heard a formal apology in Tasmania's parliament. Anyone who was affected by institutional child sexual abuse and their loved ones were invited to attend state parliament to watch the apology. It follows a commission of inquiry into the state government's responses to child sexual abuse in institutional settings, which uncovered 
shocking allegations of abuse and system failings. The federal government's facing a battle over its ambitious plan to reshape the pay and working conditions of many Australians. Parliamentary debate on the Industrial Relations Bill gets underway today, but a number of business groups are still against it and some Senate crossbenchers want more time to review the details. The state government says it's open to having a single polling day for council elections rather than only postal voting. Tasmania's first compulsory council elections had an 85% turnout, well above the 59% last time, but below the turnout for state and federal elections. And US President Joe Biden spoken at a rally in Maryland in a last attempt to keep his Democrats in control of both chambers of Congress. Americans start heading to the polls later tonight in the country's midterm elections. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Alex Melitsis joins us from the Bureau. Good day, Alex. G'day, Tony. I officially have the shorts on today, mate. It's fantastic. Loving this weather. Yes, it's uh, pretty summery weather out there, and it's looking like it's mostly sunny across much of the state. However, we are tracking a big bank of sea fog that's currently moving uh, in through through Bass Strait as we speak, and it's just sitting off the uh, north and northwest coast. So there is a chance we may see some coastal mist and, and cloud move onto the north coast uh, later on this afternoon. You're always going to have something to destroy the perfection, haven't you? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Keep it interesting. Any rainfall of note anywhere? No significant rainfall over the last uh, 30 hours. Um, and uh, temperatures currently getting into the mid-20s across uh, much of the state. The hottest places right now are uh, inland. Um, uh, Launceston's currently on uh, 24 degrees. Wow, terrific. OK, now this uh, weather's going to continue until uh, a bit of rain coming. Yeah, we've got another day tomorrow of um, pretty summery conditions. So we see um, a ridge over the state today. That'll move to the south tomorrow and that'll start to bring in some uh, some uh, north-easterly winds and they'll become fresh and gusty about the northwest, northwest uh, tomorrow evening. It'll be a fine day, um, but again, there might be some sea fog sitting off the uh, north coast tomorrow, but it should be sunny elsewhere. Uh, temperatures reaching into the high 20s uh, over the inland areas tomorrow. Then on Thursday, um, we've got uh, fresh and gusty northerly winds developing as a uh, trough approaches from the west. It'll be a fairly humid day um, and starting to feel a bit unsettled as we start to get some mid-level clouds streaming in across the state. Uh, We'll see some showers develop across the west on Thursday and then they'll extend statewide during the afternoon. Also, um, there is the chance of some thunderstorms about the northwest on Thursday evening. Then on Friday, uh, that trough will cross the state and we'll see that unsettled weather continue with showers statewide. There's also the chance of some thunderstorms about the east, south and inland areas on Friday. We'll start off with north-northwesterly winds on Friday, but they're expected to shift southwest to southeasterly during the day. And then on the weekend, uh, this sort of unsettled, humid weather is expected to continue. Uh, On Saturday, uh, we'll see showers across um, much of the state uh, with um, southeast and northeasterly winds. And then on Sunday, um, we start to we're tracking a low and a trough that's approaching from the west and will cross uh, during Sunday. There's lots of uncertainty with this trough and low on on Sunday. Uh, we are expecting showers across much of the state, uh, but some of the models have uh, quite a convective setup on on Sunday. So uh, there could be a few storms around if, if everything lines up. 
um, and um, showery conditions continue into um, into Monday, and then it looks from it looks like from uh, Tuesday next week we return to sort of uh, more typical springtime conditions. Uh, cooler temperatures return uh, later next week. What are the estimates on the amount of rain to fall in that period? Yeah, well, uh, so with this very showery um, activity over the uh, on Friday and the weekend, uh, lots of uncertainty uh, as to where the rain will fall. But um, across the whole sort of four-day period from Thursday night through to the end of Monday, it looks like most parts of Tasmania will see between 30 to 60 millimetres of rainfall. Okay. Any warnings? Uh, we don't have any warnings today, um, and with this freshening northeasterly airstream tomorrow, we do have um, a strong wind warning out for the northwest coast, east of Flinders Island, lower east coast, and southeast coast tomorrow. So it'll be pretty good out on the waters at the moment. What's happening? Uh, right now, um, we've got um, some pretty light uh, northeast to south, uh, northwesterly winds. Generally, most stations are sort of around five to ten knots. Um, and we're starting to see the uh, sea breezes kick in. Um, and uh, currently across the, uh, at the Cape Sorrel Wave Rider Buoy in the west, that's currently sitting at around uh, two metres, and that's a southwesterly with a period of 10 seconds. And in the east, uh, Mariah Island Wave Rider Buoy is currently sitting on one metre. That's a southerly with a period of, uh, of about six seconds. And if you're going boating tomorrow, we've got east to northeasterly winds of around 10 to 20 knots, reaching 25 knots about the east and northwest later on in the day. Swell tomorrow in the west and south, we have a southwesterly swell of around two to two and a half metres. In the north, there's a westerly swell around a metre tomorrow. And then uh, in the east, we'll have a southerly pushing up the east coast there of around one metre, and also a northeasterly to one metre tomorrow. And the wave riders. Uh, yes, uh, the wave rider is currently sitting on around uh, uh, two metres at Cape Sorrel and one metre at Mariah Island. Beauty, Alex, thank you for that. Good on you, Tony. Thank you. See you later. Alex Melitzis from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the Country Hour. Uh, Shelley from Carlton says, good day on the text line. With the current future shortage of potatoes, what is being done regarding supplying the local market? We are a spud-loving family. We don't eat processed potatoes. Will locals still be able to get their spuds or will all the potatoes go to the processors? Uh, thank you for that, Shelley. No, not all the uh, potatoes will go to the processors. Uh, growers are contracted to grow specific types of potatoes for the Simplots and for the McCain's. And there is a whole different market of fresh potato growers too. They've been having trouble getting onto the paddocks as well, the fresh potato growers. But uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of fresh potatoes, hopefully, uh, to uh, make sure that we all have spuds uh, right throughout the year. Um, Tasmania could not be without spuds. So I think you'll be okay, Shelley. Let's cross our fingers, though. Well, coming up in a little over 10 minutes, a world record shearing event where the old record was absolutely smashed by two brothers and their cousin in eight hours of non-stop shearing. Just great to see all, all aspects of the sheep and agriculture industry come together and um, I think it's a really great initiative to have Lou, Jim and Imran approach me for this record attempt and, and to be able to to showcase a lot of the good aspects of, uh, of the sheep industry. And they did break the world record. You won't believe the numbers of Merino lambs <laughs> They did shear in the eight-hour event. We shall have that story for you shortly. But in a moment, we're looking at forestry and diversity in the forest. Half a step forward, foot to the pitch. Get ready for Grandstand Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. 
Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Bowling! Wicket's tumbling. Live. Another hundred. And ad-free. Oh, wow. All the action of Grandstand's Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is that text line number. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. What kind of image springs to mind when you think of a person who works in the forestry industry? Big hairy man with big boots and a flanny. You're not far off the truth, but the major players in Tasmania's forest sector have decided to come together and change that with a plan to increase diversity amongst the workforce. Meg Powell has the story. My name's Therese Taylor and I'm the convener of the Tasmanian Forests and Forest Products Network. Uh, Therese, there's a stereotype around the forestry industry that it's probably mostly men, middle-aged is that, a fair, is that a fair stereotype, a fair assumption? I know there is that stereotype around uh, forestry and I'd have to say at the moment I think it's a fairly true reflection of the workforce within the forest industry. To date, only 16% of uh, forest employees are women and a much lower percentage of um, migrant workers and young people. The average age in the industry is 50 plus. So we can see just over the horizon that the the industry has got tremendous issues and barriers about replacement of the workforce. But it's even greater than that because the forest industry is changing at a rapid pace. The innovation in the industry uh, is is huge. The supply uh, and demand, the d- demand for timber is far out, uh, outpacing the supply for timber, which is a tremendous uh, opportunity, I think, to grow the workforce and diversify the skills within that workforce. My name is Brodie Frost from Sustainable Timber Tasmania. I'm the Fire Management Coordinator North uh, there and also am the chair of the Workforce and Diversity Action Group. (laughs) And you're here to launch a workforce diversity plan? That's right, yeah, diversity action plan. So it's an industry uh, plan that's been developed thanks to some funding from the state government uh, to develop that plan over three years to uh, increase the industry's diversity and and attract more people. And why? Why do that? A more diverse workforce uh, has a number of benefits. We've identified those and, you know, they range from, one, attracting more people, uh, but a, a, more, a more diverse group of people working in our industry is more innovative. Uh, we, we, we come up with better ideas. It's a more supportive workplace for others. Uh, and really, it's just about having uh, more good people uh, in, into our industry. Uh, that we have a, a skill shortage uh, as as well as a lot of other industries, and we want to attract and retain uh, yeah, good people, and having more diverse people will help us do that. Why, why does diversity matter? For a range of reasons. Uh, lots of research has been done around uh, the world and in other industries about diversifying your, your workforce because the greater the the 
types of people who are coming into the workforce, they're bringing their own culture and their own ideas. You you obviously have the perspective of being a woman in a very male-dominated industry. Are there particular challenges that you face? I think um, women feel very isolated in an industry like the forest industry. And when we looked at the breakdown of that 16%, a lot of the women are grouped together in uh, administration jobs, etc. So when you look at women who are out um, in harvesting or in some of the processing areas, you may be only one or two women in that workforce. And it's very easy to just assume they're happy with their jobs but you know if you want to retain after you've trained a worker you want to attract the right worker you want to train that worker you want to keep them and you need to keep them by making sure there aren't any barriers to their employment it could be just as flexible as starting a bit earlier so other commitments in your life can be fulfilled and everyone has has those, whatever it could be. So, and and women seem to shoulder a lot of those outside work commitments. So, those sorts of conversations, which may not vary the routine within the workforce too much, but could mean a lot to, to retaining a, a valuable worker. So, how do you actually do that? It's one thing to say it, but how do you do it? And we we talk about how being being a great industry. So, it's around uh, growing. Uh, retaining, uh, educating as, as well and it's about identifying what uh, barriers we may have in the industry about attracting diverse people. Uh, it's, it's about educating people within the industry uh, around how to support diversity. Um, we have a, a, a clear goal that uh, everyone in the industry sees diversity as their responsibility. It's not just for leaders, but it's, it's all people across all lines in the industry to take diversity seriously. That's Sustainable Timber Tasmania's Brodie Frost finishing that story from Meg Powell, explaining how the sector plans to diversify its workforce. Well, if you popped up to the log yard behind the old pulp mill at Burnie about morning tea time, you'll find people of different genders and backgrounds having a cuppa and a chat together. They're from Wood-Based Products, which is one of the rare forestry businesses with virtually an equal spread of men and women. My name's Andrew Wye, and I'm part of the Wood-Based Products team, and we operate throughout Tasmania. Andrew, you were talking about something called yak in the yard. Could you tell me what that means? Uh, Yeah, well, first of all, it's a really bad dad joke, but actually it's all about just getting uh, creating a space where people can get together and have a talk. And we've done a couple. We've talked about safety. We've had people from Raw, which is uh, alive and well, and and talked about mental health. And because we're in the yard, we buy wood from lots of different forest owners. So they can all come into the yard, have a yak, have a cup of tea, have a feed. And um, because blokes... Unfortunately, still blokes, a lot of blokes in the forest, don't like coming in and sitting in a workshop or sitting in an office, but they come here every day. This is their workplace. So the yak in the yard is somewhere neutral where they get a cup of tea, a vanilla slice and have a yak. Now, why did you start that in the first place? What was the thinking? It's because our business is very much reliant on the the truck drivers and the forest operators 
and also our team and we just thought it was useful that if you actually have everyone working together and talking together it tends to make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable rather than if you're all just sitting there in sort of like the team meeting you can't you can't um people just don't talk and with the raw guys we actually found that the truck drivers that have a would disappear off it to a corner and we wouldn't see them and next thing you know they're talking to the guys that are the specialists on mental health just getting some contact details so it's just about a uh, a safe space you said mental health was a real focus for you in this company why is that um we've got a stressful our business is stressful um, and we have at times we, we're pretty compressed in regards to what we need to do and so people just had to talk about what was some stuff that was important to them and there was just had to, the, the feedback was that we just needed to be aware that there's stuff happening outside of the outside of work or there's we, we're just busy with shiploading and everything so it was just about giving people time to have space and and, and have just talk about if they, if there are any matters and it is all you know, uh, sensible and private, and all, but just just talk about it. And if you there's a there's a level of comfort, I think, that people can just talk about and say, "I'm having a eh, eh, day," and people just say, "Yeah, that's all right. We'll we'll cover for it, or we can we can deal with it." Karen Scaler, Woodbase Products. Have you guys noticed a change in the team since things like the yak in the yard started? Yes, yes, because to me, it's proof total proof in the pudding that the company sees all of us as complete individuals humans with other things everything um i'm (laughs) hayley rawlings and i'm an administrator at woodbase products i'm jacinta from woodbase products and i'm also an administrator and other stuff and other stuff like (laughs) driving excavators helping out scaling um just whatever i can to jump in and help the team and work well and help out where we can and listen to each other and i think that's what brings our team together and there's quite a few women who work in this business is that that must be nice to work in this industry yeah Yeah. with a balance really nice you're nodding there (laughs) have you worked in quite male dominated places before it's nice to have, it is nice to have the mix. Everybody brings something different to it, which is really, really nice. Really changes the tone, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Jacinta, I wanted to ask you, you're, after your licence to drive the big trucks, how, how long have you been after that for? Um, so I come into wood-based products in January. Um, I did just start um, just admin in the office and doing all that where I could and then I jumped into the excavator um, and it's just bits and pieces when I can get in there for me to be able to get it but I'm hoping to get it probably before Christmas time but yeah. Is that you working with a lot of blokes in that kind of space? Um, Yeah really Um, you get taught by the blokes in the excavators Um, but we do have another young girl Um, she's just passed her license so she's doing well. And why did you want to get into this industry? To start with, I would never pitch myself in this industry. Um, I used to be in housekeeping um, and then our boss knew me and asked me if I'd like a job and I come in not really knowing what I was getting myself into, but um, I absolutely love this job. So. And are you similar, Hayley? Yeah, I grew up around log trucks and the bush and that kind of stuff so it's always been an interest but 
Never really thought I'd get a job in it, but here I am. <laughs> what did your family say then when you ended up getting into the, the family business anyway? Um, my dad was pretty excited because <laughs> he used to drive log trucks and stuff. Any regrets joining? No. That was Woodbase Products. Hayley Rawlings talking there to Meg Powell about the diversity of workers in their business and the efforts the company makes to combat mental health problems. There was mention there of Raw Rural Alive and Well, who do such a great job throughout the state helping the rural sector. If you need to talk to someone, simply go to the Rural Alive and Well webpage for a contact for a yak in the yard. Coming up, that shearing record we've been promising. We'll tell you the story in a moment. ABC Radio, keeping local conversations going. Well, I think people want to feel connected. They want to believe in each other, and we need that sense of community. Listening to your show got me through it. There's a huge power imbalance. This is an industry that is totally unregulated. You're one of my favourite people on the radio. Grew up listening to ABC. Fabulous stuff. Stay connected with ABC Radio. Let's keep this conversation going. On radio, online, and on the ABC Listen app. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, a world shearing record was broken in WA over the weekend. It was the three-stand, eight-hour merino lamb shearing record. And it all happened at Wayne Peck's shearing shed in WA's great southern region. The three shearers were brothers Lou and Jim Brown, along with their cousin Imran Sullivan. All up, 1,603 lambs were shorn by the three of them in eight hours. So they absolutely smashed the previous world record of 1,208, 1,603 lambs in eight hours. Let's join the action just before the end. So, Wayne, you've got a shearing record on your property today. How does it feel to be hosting? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's uh, just great to see all, all aspects of the sheep and agriculture industry come together and um, I think it's a really great initiative to have Lou, Jim and Imran approach me for this record attempt and, and to be able to, to showcase a lot of the good aspects of, uh, of the sheep industry. How long has this been in the making? Uh, Lou first chatted to me a couple of years ago actually when he when he was shearing at our shed and said this three stand record while quite a demanding day was actually more achievable than some of the other world records and um, so we started thinking about it then and we nearly went ahead next year but then then COVID slowed it down with getting uh, or just put a stop to it with getting judges from New Zealand um, and, and really that's better we've had another 12 months to prepare for it so it's, it's, it's been two years in the making. Yeah um, Maisie McFarlane and um, I'm a rouseabout I just have like one second to even look at the boys. I haven't even been able to check it. Just making sure I'm watching the wool because there's just not t- any time to like really do anything else. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. The um, help from my staff and the help from other people in the shearing industry, the, the amount of work that's been involved in preparing these sheep. Um, a, a lot of work yesterday getting the sheep ready uh, for today's shearing attempt. It it's, it's just shows uh, the amount of teamwork. And, and the positive energy that's um, happened when everything comes together. It's, it's a really fantastic day. Seeing the way they're sweating, oh my God, I, I don't know how they're doing it, but they pump them way harder than I've seen ever. So I'm pretty proud of like the way they're actually working. It's, it's amazing 
how quick they can, and efficient they can be. Like, we have hardly any skin coming out, which is awesome, so they're quite clean. But um, there's a little bit of stain on the wool, but that's, that's not too much really, so yeah. So, you're a record holder now, how's it feel? Feels sore, a little bit sore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel actually, it's sort of just numb all over. Uh, I'm Jim Waidahu Brown, uh, we just broke the freestand record and uh, it was a tough effort. How do you feel now? Very sore. And what was motivating you to just keep going along? Oh, family, friends, crew, everyone that's put in the work. Was there a bit of competition between you and your brother and cousin? Oh, I've been sharing so well leading up, I thought I could stick with them, but today they horsed it out, so respect, no matter what, for everyone. And when that timer went off, how'd you feel? Oh, relieved. Yeah, I wanted a beer. <laughs> and there was just such a massive crew behind you today yeah, in front yeah, of you. Like... Yeah, they saw how hard I was doing it. But how I, they, what egged me on. I hit a wall, like, I was sore. When did you hit the wall? Just emotions, yeah. Not completely like I was going to stop or anything, just hurting, yeah. And what kind of got you over the line in the end? Well, the crew, thinking of everyone, what they've done for me, family, just respect. Couldn't let anyone down. Oh, we're prepared for it our whole lives, you know. It's been passed down from the last generation and you're just using the information that they've taught us, all the knowledge, that's where it comes from. And what was going through your head, especially in that last run? Oh, everything, heaps of things, mixed emotions. You just take it as it comes and just keep going, keep digging. So that's all you want to find all day, I think, is a rhythm, but it was sort of hard. Like, um, sometimes you just get a hard sheep and then your foot, get your feet work will get in front of your blows and, yeah, sheep will play up a little bit, but I don't know. They each have their own personality, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do, and you can tell right from the get-go whether it's going to be a good one or a nice one, you know, but that's it's all right. We, I was probably cutting them and pulling their hair out of their wool out, so, you know, fair's fair, love and war. Go get a rub down, a uh, few electrolytes and then a couple of beers, I think. It's been a, been a bit of a journey to get here, so it's always been in the back of the mind to do something like this. And um, this record was up for grabs and, and the cousin hooked it up, so yeah, it's, it's pretty good. All, all the family and all that's here, everyone's come from far and wide, like people ain't seen for ages, so it's pretty cool. It's good that it's for like um, something good, not a funeral, that, that's the cool part about it. Yeah, be cool to have it on like on record that I'm, I was in it and a part of it and yeah, I appreciate the whole opportunity of being a Rousey that's like passes to be a part of it, so yeah. <laughs> I just think the sheep industry and agriculture is, is such an important part of WA and too often we don't necessarily um, get the good news stories out there about, about how good uh, we are at farming and, and producing and this is one way of showing that. Shearing is such a um, physically demanding and technical and, and repetitive industry. I've just got uh, so much respect for, for any shearers that make this their life and, and their work and, and I think all we can do to promote what can happen in shearing, whether it's setting records or travelling the world while they're working, is, um, is, is good for the sheep industry.
Yeah, what a great achievement. Farmer Wayne Peck talking to Sophie Johnston about three-stand world shearing record that was set at Cranbrook Shearing Shed at the weekend. The Tidebrook proud shearers were brothers Lou and Jim Brown, along with their cousin Imran Sullivan. You also heard there from Roust about Maisie McFarlane from Franklin River Shearing Services. Three shearers managed to shear a total of 1,603 merino lambs in eight hours. That ties me out thinking about it. Okay, we'll catch you after midday tomorrow.